too many things happened in my life just showing me that God has a plan for me and for my girls. Like certain things in this life has no explanation. We just need to accept it and go with it and be grateful for it. You are now listening to Undercurrents. My name is Ken Ogasawara, and I'm part of the communications and community engagement team at Mennonite Central Committee in Ontario. This podcast is an ongoing experiment to find a new way to tell the stories coming from our community of partners, program participants, staff, and others. Undercurrents is brought to you by Kindred Credit Union. Kindred's purpose is cooperative banking that connects values and faith with finances, inspiring peaceful, just, and prosperous communities. Kindred contributes to the creation of welcoming communities for newcomers through products, service, relationships, and partnerships. This episode is about miracles. When I was 17 years old, my best friend Mike and I experienced a miracle. Maybe. We were driving back in the middle of the night from a concert, Bela Fleck and the Flecktones, if you must know. The circumstances were unusual, which made it even more fun for me and Mike. The concert was in Buffalo, New York, and it was the middle of a school week. I have no idea how both sets of parents were okay with this. Mike was driving, and I was sitting in the passenger side beside him, and we were tired. It was close to two in the morning by the time we had crossed the border back into Ontario. We both fell asleep going 110 kilometers per hour on the QEW, just outside Hamilton. I woke up first and grabbed the wheel just before we hit the concrete median in the middle of the highway. Mike then woke up and grabbed the wheel back, and we fishtailed, then spun wildly across four lanes of mercifully empty highway before crashing into one of those gigantic highway light posts. We were stuck. We were shocked. But we were unhurt. This was 1998, and we didn't have a cell phone to call for help. We staggered out of the car and took in the damage. Suddenly, a woman appeared. I assumed she had pulled up behind us, but I don't actually remember seeing her car. She asked if we were okay, and said she had called 911 for us. And before we knew it, she had disappeared into the night. Mike and I were both stunned by the accident and not really aware of what was going on, but we did catch her name. Angela. Now I'm not suggesting that this was a supernatural event. This was simply a woman who just happened to be driving at 2 a.m. on a lonely stretch of highway, who just happened to have a cell phone in 1998, and who just happened to have a name that literally means angel. But truly miraculous or not, the point is, against all odds, she came through for us. She helped two strangers in a moment of crisis. This episode is about a friend of mine named Maysoon, who has also some experience with miracles, with ordinary people doing extraordinary things for her. I, I read a lot. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a journalist. You know, like, we are only three children. Maysoon grew up in a small town in a country that I will not name here for security reasons. We, we live in comfort and uh, I focus, we focus a lot on education, uh, reading. And that wasn't the case, you know, with lots of children. It wasn't a happy, happy childhood. 
My parents belong to different denominations, actually different religions though, even my dad wasn't religious, but uh, we considered as an outcast people, me and my siblings. Uh, I faced lots of discrimination from the family, from people around me. I was called names, I was bullied. We've been treated as strangers all the time. I'll go from school to my place, my place to school, study, have very few friends, surprisingly very few friends. I don't like to leave our house at all. I always wanted to listen to opera in a very early age, um, watch documentaries and read books, <laughs> which was very abnormal for teenagers, you know? <laughs> Because I used even to hear it like, you're complicated, you have mental problem. And I'm like, I don't think so. I just enjoy these things. So uh, I continued through high school and I said, mm, I want to become a journalist. Okay, why you want to become a journalist? I said, I want to advocate for people who has no voices. And uh, I graduated from high school. I lived in student dorm. I studied journalism. It was very interesting time during uh, university years. Uh, suddenly I have lots of friends, I'm very outgoing, like I start flourishing outside of my uh, uh, own soil. My own soil where I was born was very toxic. When I moved outside of it, it's just uh, things had changed for me. I start exploring myself. So I become one of the leaders in the university. Uh, my voice were, were, was well uh, heard by my uh, colleagues, uh, caused lots of troubles with the authorities. I was arrested a few times from secret police. They investigated me several times when I was a student. During her last year of university, Maysoon met her future husband, who was a fellow activist, and after two years, they were married. A year after that, she gave birth to their daughter. Life was good. But one day, everything changed. And I remember he came to me saying, uh, early morning, I'm going to work. Do you want anything? I said, no. He got his laptop and he left. And I didn't see him for over a year since then. A police officer, who Maysoon's husband had bribed often while detained, had tipped him off that his friends had been arrested and he was next. He fled the country immediately. He phoned me, of course, 24 hours had passed, I didn't see him, and he phoned me. It was a known number, actually, no ID, and he said, that's what happened, I'm trying to find a way to go to any country. Before that, he used to go to China for business. So his Chinese visa was, was still valid. So he said, okay, I'll go to China now. I don't have to wait. He spent a couple months in China. He was determined to come back, but May soon knew it would be impossible. So I told him, um, no, you cannot come back. Things are really bad. I said, why don't go to Europe, join your cousins, um, and uncles, and, uh, you know, we can go there, seek refuge. He said, I don't want to be a refugee. I love my country. 
It was really scary, like the whole situation, the unknown, you didn't know what to expect. So I, I, I was living in, a, in an actual fear. During this time, Maysoon discovered she was pregnant and eventually gave birth to their second daughter. Maysoon was essentially a single mother of two very young children, facing down harassment from the police and just trying to survive. Finally, out of desperation, they decided to meet up in a neighboring country close to Maysoon. It had been exactly one year since Maysoon's husband had fled home. We spent about five days there. So with the agreement that um, when he returned to China, he will arrange the situation for me and the girls and we will go join him there. And after that, we will go to Austria. That was the major plan. Maysoon flew back home and waited and waited. What happened with you? What happened with you? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. just it's a matter of time. My Chinese visa is going to expire. I have to go to a place called Macau. It's not an actual country, but it is a country. It's belonged to China, but it has its own system. And I'm like, okay, he said, there is a Chinese uh, embassy there. I'm going to go extend my visa. So it sounds good. It was in Macau that disaster struck. Maysoon's husband was checking out of a hotel he had stayed at for his brief visit to extend his visa. He left his baggage at the front desk and went to use the washroom. When he came out, all of his belongings were gone his passport, his ID, all of his money. He was stateless and homeless in a matter of seconds. Maysoon knew then that she and her girls had to get to Macau to join her husband. The plan was to go there in a very secretive way. So I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell the family members, no one. I just told my mom, my uh, in-laws, and that's it. Like the cousins, siblings, nobody knows anything. So we booked, uh, you know, the air flight uh, at the airport <laughs> where I started the story. The officer said, no, you cannot leave the country. Of course, at that time, in my pocket, I had 3,600 US dollars. The 600 was separated. I put it in a different, uh, you know, like it, it was in my pocket. The 3,000 was uh, in my purse. So I told him, how much do you want? Just let me go through. And he said, how much do you have? And I'm like, okay, I have, I only have this $3,000. He took it and he allowed me to go through. I was thinking all the time, like he's going to call someone and they will arrest me. He will just take the money and they will arrest me and that's it. So I was sitting my heart, I thought it was going to explode. <laughs> My brain was really uh, in a horrible pain. And um, when I ride the, the airplane, I, I sat, I wasn't able to cry. I was, I was just like, oh, oh, please, 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 please. I hope you have goodness in your heart. Don't, don't, don't. The moment the airplane start moving, I start like feeling okay. I I'm, 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 I will make it. I will I will be alive. I will survive. When the airplane flew, I start crying. I held my girls. I said, "We're good. We're out. <laughs> We're out."
As of June 2021, over 82 million people around the world have been forced to flee their homes. Among them are over 26 million refugees who have had to flee their country, and around half of that 26 million are children under the age of 18. Every year, only about 1% of refugees are successfully resettled to another country. The pandemic has made this situation worse. While Canada had not officially lowered the limit of refugees able to resettle to Canada, border restrictions and pandemic protocol meant that in reality, refugee resettlement slowed to a trickle. That means more waiting and uncertainty for refugees, who can remain in exile for years at a time. Maysoon was about to begin her own period of waiting in Macau. They lived in an apartment provided by the government of Macau, but they were not allowed to work or travel. Their passports were confiscated. Every month, they had to visit the immigration office and reapply for another monthly visa. They ended up living in this state of limbo for five years. Uh, of course, my husband was in trauma, like severe trauma. Suddenly, he lost everything. He found himself useless. He didn't know what to do, where to go, so he barely came home, you know? So I was all by my own with the girls. So I remember I opened the fridge. The fridge was empty. No money. Um, I didn't know what to do. And it was dinner time. The girls came. They said, Mom, we're hungry. And I was like, okay, don't worry. I'm, I'm going to make some food for you. And I was thinking, and oh, and mind you, at that time I was atheist. Yes. I spent most of my life atheist. <laughs> Yes, I have to admit, I was a very strong atheist. So, and after all this drama and tragedy, how on earth I will find God, you know? I, I was like, no way. I sat there and I started crying. And I remember I look, you know, to the sky, I said, I always deny you. I always neglect you. I always rejected you. If you are exist, and you are the God, sent food for these two girls. I don't want anything. If you are an actual God, send food for these girls. Like, imagine yourself in this situation challenging God, <laughs> as if you're telling him, make it rain, burger, and food. You know, like, it's crazy. But I was so desperate. My husband wasn't there. I didn't see him for two days. The fridge was empty. I, like, I was like, oh my gosh, what should I do? and all responsibilities on me, and I'm trying to manage everything. I, I didn't know what to do. And I'm like, yeah, if you are the God and you will send the food, I promise I will follow you. You're going to be my Lord, and I will never argue. If you are exist, show me that you are exist. <laughs> Honestly, like, come on, man. It's crazy. I shouldn't do that. But here is the thing. Five minutes later, I receive a phone call from Sister Shenzhen in Mother Teresa Missionary of Charity. Maysoon had been volunteering at Mother Teresa Missionaries of Charity and at a number of other charities. There was childcare, and it was her way of doing something, being useful, to combat the agony of loneliness and uncertainty. So it was in this moment of despair, with hungry children and an empty fridge, that Maysoon got a call from Sister Shenzhen. She said, Maysoon, are you okay? When she asked me this question, I started crying. She said, Maysoon, what happened? I said, oh my gosh, why did you call me? She said, I don't know. 
She said, there was a voice in my ear saying, call me soon, call me soon, me soon, me soon, me soon. And they pronounced my name very nicely in Chinese. They pronounced it exactly the way how it should be. And she said, I, I kept hearing your, your voice in, in my, my uh, your, your name in my ear, me soon, me soon, me soon, call me soon. And she said, I don't know why, but I, I called you. Are you okay? I said, I'm coming. She said, yeah, come. When Maysoon got to Mother Teresa Missionaries of Charity, she found out that that very night when Maysoon was staring at an empty fridge, a rich businessman had held a wedding feast for his daughter. As is often the case at wedding feasts, there was more than enough food, and dozens of boxes of unopened fine dining was sent to Mother Teresa Missionaries of Charity. Uh, the food was in a big boxes, never opened. Luxurious food, never open. And you know, when I say Chinese luxurious food, you know what I'm talking about, like the certain type of soup, the lobster, that, you know, it never opened. That time, that moment when I challenged God, Sister Shenzhen called me to say they have this food from the banquet that never touched, and she didn't know why she called me. She didn't know I need the food that we were starving, literally. So when I went there, I saw the food. I couldn't stop crying. And she said, tell me what's happening. So I explained to her. I said, this is the case. This is the situation. And I challenged God. All sisters start crying. They said, you challenged. I said, I challenged him. I'm a believer now. I, I said, I, I have n nothing to say. Like, Every time I remember, I said, how on earth I denied him for, for, for how long? Since I was born, probably. Too painful, you know? But yeah, he, as if he, 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 he was telling me, hey, you're my daughter. Of course I can provide food. Are you kidding me? This is like easy. Everything. And you know what? I returned home with the most luxurious food you can ever imagine. The fridge was full, like big size fridge. The boxes of food, like, oh my goodness. Even the girl said, wow, you got this food? I said, yeah. Everything you, you especially seafood, we are seafood lover, actually. So it was amazing. The miracle of the wedding feast was a significant event in Maysoon's life. It brought her to faith, which in turn brought her into a strong community, a Bible study group. This group would have a significant impact in the lives of Maysoon and her family. But first, they had to overcome another shock. After two and a half years, they said, we will grant you the residency, just wait. In three months, we will do that. They had been waiting to become eligible to claim residency in Macau, which could mean the opportunity to work again and end the monthly visa applications and the constant feeling of being in limbo. This was a big deal. After three months, they called uh, my husband. He went there thinking we will get the, uh, uh, our residency. It was a letter of deportation. We receive instead of uh, our residency, a letter of deportation with the 15 days uh, time to appeal. It was really shocking. It was Thursday. I remember the day very well. So I was so helpless and hopeless and I didn't know what to do. And we start thinking how to leave the country. They will deport us and we cannot hire a lawyer. We have no money to hire a lawyer though. So on Friday, um, I remember at 7 p.m., I contacted my friend and I told her that's, that, that's what happened. And she was really in a 
shock. Like, how come? I said, I have no idea. So what she did, she said, I'm going to contact sister, uh, one of the nuns in Hong Kong. She used to know some lawyers here. Let's see what's going to happen. But probably she's not going to be here. She always leave early on Friday. I said, okay. She said, probably it's going to skip till Monday. I'm like, okay. 7.30, I receive a phone call um, from uh, my friend telling me, miraculously, uh, the sister stayed in the office. For 25 years, she never stayed in the office. And that day, she decided to stay. And she felt that she needs to stay. And she she knew about my story because I'm, I was the one who made all this connection, my friends, my you know. So um, she said, okay, I will call a lawyer who was responsible for human rights trafficking in Macau. He's very helpful. See how he's, he's going to be able to help. After my friend's phone call, they phoned me right away from the office. They said, come now with all the documents you have. We met with him. God bless him. He owned a law firm, maybe the biggest law firm in Macau, and he volunteered to appeal and to do everything for us until we find a third safe country. So he communicated with UNHCR. He appealed for the case. Um, He did everything free of charge. He said, I just want to do it because this is the right thing to do. Essentially, this lawyer was trying to buy time for Maysoon and her family until the UNHCR could find some random country to take them in. The problem was that this waitlist was 10 years long, and not even the best lawyer in Macau could delay their deportation for that long. That is when one UNHCR official recommended that they might as well try resettling through something called private sponsorship. He said there are two countries in the world do something called private sponsorship, Canada and Australia. If you are a Canadian listening to this, you may be familiar with the idea of privately sponsoring a refugee. For decades, Canada was the only country in the world where citizens could sponsor and support refugees. And though this comes dangerously close to pride, I have to note here that way back in 1974, MCC was the one to negotiate this unprecedented partnership between the federal government and private citizens in response to the epic flood of refugees emerging out of the Vietnam War. Private sponsorship was a long shot, but Maysoon had to try. All what you need to do is to find a church, and the church would be responsible for you for one year, and they will bring you to a safe haven. And I was like, okay, okay, I don't know what to do, but I will try. So I told my friends in ladies' Bible study, and mind you, we were all women. Women's power, man, women's power. So I told them this is the, the, the case. They said, okay. Let's conduct a a very strong email, write your story, and we will spread the email all over the world. The friends in Ladies Bible Study, they are from all over the world. They are from United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Finland, England, uh, China, uh, Singapore, Philippines, like literally it's, it's from everywhere. So I wrote the letter and they did like email it, like they spread it everywhere. Here's the beginning of Maysoon's second miracle. We receive a response from two churches, one in Kitchener, Ontario. (laughs) She's laughing because of my shocked reaction as I sat listening to her from my home (laughs) in Kitchener. I never heard of Kitchener at that time, and one in Winnipeg. The one in Kitchener, Ontario at that time, 
they had no experience at all with their sponsorship. They didn't know where to start, where to go, but they really wanted to help. In the end, the church from Winnipeg, which had sponsored refugees before, were the ones to sponsor Maysoon and her family. They know what they're doing. They, they're an expert. We just wanted to be out, just be safe. It turns out the woman in Winnipeg who received Maysoon's story and urged her church to sponsor Maysoon and her family was also a missionary in Macau who happened to be home in Winnipeg at the time. After the wheels were in motion to sponsor Maysoon and her family, this woman came back to Macau. Maysoon's friend Linda wanted to introduce this Canadian woman to Maysoon. So she told me, well, uh, this friend had came back from Canada. I want you to meet with her. She's been very helpful. So I was like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. Like someone really willing to help. Okay. Make a connection now, my friend. A year before, I was in an area called um, Hunkai Si. Macau, of course, I know it like my palm. Like I can go there as a, as a local. They have factories, clothing factories, okay? So I saw a white lady with her daughter. And she was looking for a jean for her daughter at Men's Jean Factory. Because I know everything in Macau. Everything. I was like... I stopped there. I was like, oh my gosh, she's wasting her time. Poor woman. She's not going to find Jean for her daughter. Oh, should I intervene? Maybe she will think I'm weirdo. You know what? I'm going to intervene. So I said, hey, excuse me. She said, yeah. I said, are you looking for Jean for your daughter? I think that's what you're doing. She said, oh yeah. I said, well, you're not going to find it here. This is for men. You need to go down, you know, the street. You will see a big place. They hang the Jean, you know. Uh, from the uh, roof and uh, they have the best gene in Macau. It's, it's, it's all, you know, for females. She said, oh my gosh, thank you, thank you, bye-bye, see you, that's it. I didn't see her again, okay? So, now you're asking why Mason is saying this story. Now you will know. So, <laughs> my friend from England arranged for a meeting for the Canadian woman who got the, the, the story and uh, helped us to find a sponsor, Okay. My friend opened the door. The lady entered the, the, the house. I looked at her. She looked at me. She said, you. I said, you. And my friend said, what's going on? Do you know each other? She said, yeah. She was the one who helped me to find Jean for my daughter a year before. And we start crying. And she said, you helped me in something very, very simple to find a Jean for my daughter. Without knowing who I am, she helped, like, it, it just, I said, oh my gosh, it's like a movie. If I will tell someone about that, nobody would believe it, you know? The miracle of the genes was followed up by yet another victory. In the first time in Macau history, the lawyer won the case against the government. This was the lawyer working to delay Maysoon and her family's deportation. He had somehow, against all odds won them the right to stay in Macau. So the government said, we respect what the judge decide, but we disagree with him because the judge said, uh, we have to stay, we need to be resettled, we need to get our residency. So the government said, no, they can stay the way they are now. No permanent residency, no rights to study at university, no rights to travel, and no rights to work. And I was like, what, what, what for? Why? Okay. Despite the government's unwillingness to let them resettle in Macau, 
The miraculous court victory removed the threat of immediate deportation, and they were able to pursue private sponsorship in Canada. We received the approval to come to Canada after another two and a half years, like we completed exact five years in Macau. Uh, we arrived to Winnipeg, uh, Manitoba, uh, on December 13, 2012. We left Macau, it was uh, 25 plus. It was here minus 45. And it was the happiest day in my life. Fast forward nine years, and Maysoon and her family have settled deep roots into Winnipeg, finding and growing a community that has embraced her. Maysoon has also endured tragedy. Her husband, with whom she had been through so much, was killed in a tragic accident last year. The outpouring of grief and support from their community was immense, as the two of them had become pillars in their community. Today, Maysoon is as busy as ever, serving on countless boards, running camps for newcomer youth, working tirelessly to build a community in which all truly feel welcome. This work is a passion for Maysoon, especially as somebody who did not feel welcome in her own hometown and was forced to leave her home country. So settlement is uh, the biggest challenge because it's not like it's not only bringing uh, refugees, resettle them, uh, uh, provide them with monthly support, um, and that's it, and teach them how to ride the bus and uh, how to go to school. No, it's about how to feel that you belong to this society, how to establish a relationship within the community, not your ethnic community, no, the wide range community. Uh, I found this challenging for many people, because especially people who come through uh, community sponsorship, for example, because they will stuck within their own community, like to build the bridge with local people like Canadian born people uh, to understand the culture. It, it, it takes courage. People are afraid sometimes to share their thoughts or even if they want to share their thoughts, they don't have a proper language. So these barriers are really uh, challenging, but it, they, they're also solvable. Like you, you cannot say, oh, we cannot solve it. We can, but it, it takes time and it needs lots of support and collaboration from different sides. Like in many cases I hear from, let's say government level, oh, there are refugees or res resettled refugees. Ah, oh, they're very successful. They are working, uh, they own their houses, they're making money, they're establishing their life, they're happy. It's not about you're making money. It's about, do you feel you are part of this country? Do you belong to this society? So our main focus through our organization is to help them to understand the better way of adjustment, that they are acceptable here, that they are welcome here, and uh, there is a way for them to integrate in a healthy way and feel that they belong to not an outcast as I used to feel in my country, my original country. I have to be specific because Canada is my country now and I belong to. For many refugees who have lived in uncertainty for years and whose hearts have ached in vain to return home, 
Finding a new community, a new home to love in Canada, is an extraordinary, unbelievable process given the long odds. Maysoon's story is not unique. The challenges she and her family faced are faced by millions every day, and many are in even more dire situations with even greater odds against them. In fact, you could safely say that not a single refugee is resettled without miracles happening along the way. Every day, desperate prayers are answered, and random strangers step up in a big way. But here's the thing. When Maysoon challenged God on that fateful, hungry night years ago, and received a wedding banquet in response, it was a miracle. For her. But the rich businessman who had sent the leftovers to Mother Teresa's missionaries of charity probably had no idea that he was part of someone else's life-changing event. That doesn't make it any less holy. It's strange to think, but we often don't recognize our own part in someone else's miracle. Regular people doing what they think are normal things, but making an enormous impact in someone's life without ever knowing it. It could be you. Maybe you give somebody a second chance. Maybe you introduce someone who's down on their luck to a friend who's hiring. Maybe you hear a podcast episode about refugee resettlement and think, hmm, what if? If you feel moved to do your small part in making a miracle happen, please reach out to us at podcast at mcco.ca. My colleagues in the migration and resettlement team would be happy to connect with you, your church, or community group about sponsoring a refugee. Right now, there's a special government program called the Blended Visa Office Referred Program that cuts the cost of a year's sponsorship nearly in half and supports the most vulnerable refugees. And with the gradual reopening of borders, the need for sponsor groups becomes more urgent. You can learn more about it in the show notes. I want to thank Maysoon for sharing her story with me and for her tireless efforts to make her community more welcoming. Thank you to my colleagues Moses Moyni, Stephanie Schroeders, and Peggy Pickett, who support hundreds of sponsors and newcomers in Ontario every year. And thank you to Angela, if that is your real name, for coming to the rescue of two scared teenagers who had crashed their car on the QEW in 1998. This episode was mixed by Francois Goudreau, original and theme music by Brian McMillan, and artwork by Jesse Bergen. Special thanks to producer Kristen Kong for her invaluable editorial feedback. If you have any miraculous stories from your life that you'd like to share, please write to us at podcast.mcco.ca. Also, we'd really cherish your feedback as it will help us continue this podcast. So if you have any kind words or constructive criticism, please send it to me at podcast.mcco.ca. My name is Ken Ogasawara. Thanks for listening to Undercurrents and have a great rest of your day.